This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio and I'm James Whitmore. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where this show is being broadcast from, the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. Winter is whale season in Australia, with humpbacks and southern right whales coming to Australia's coast to escape the cold in Antarctica. But they're just the most famous visitors to Australia's seas, and today we're going to hear about a very mysterious and very small whale that we're only just beginning to understand. I'll be right back after this. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender-attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm bisexual. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. There are nearly 50 species of whales and dolphins that have been recorded in Australia's seas, and one of the most mysterious is the pygmy right whale, the smallest of the baleen whales that include humpbacks, southern right, right whales and blue whales. But new research for the first time is revealing some of the mysteries of these small whales, and the story is really interesting. I spoke to researcher Adelaide Dedden from the University of New South Wales to find out how scientists study a whale that so few people have seen. Hi Adelaide. So a pygmy right whale, the idea of a little whale swimming around in Australia's waters is, is kind of cute. How big are pygmy right whales actually? So they're the smallest member of the filter feeding family. So they reach six and a half metres long. Um, which is still quite big, but for the for the baleen whales, yeah, they are they are the smallest one. Yeah, so they're they're not dolphin size, but they're much smaller <laughs> than the other baleen whales. Yeah. And can you yeah. tell us a bit about what they look like? They don't have those big um callosities on their heads that the other right whales have. No, so they're they're quite like small and slender so similar to the right whales they have that really arched jawline so that's one distinctive feature of the pygmy right whales similar to the other right whales they're commonly confused with minke whales so they look quite similar to minke whales they're kind of like a light gray color quite slender small pectoral fins um yeah but it's it's that kind of upper arch jawline that's it it's what distinguishes them from the minke whales yeah and that's really about as much as we knew about these whales, isn't it? Why why do we know so little about them? So before this study, we had very limited live sightings of the animals um, and they were all primarily off southern Australia. There was some slightly further south, just offshore. Um, and then we also had quite a, a large stranding occurrence of them off South Australia. And when I say large, I don't mean unusual. It's just because 
Now that the study shows that they do stay here year round, it does make sense that we do have a stranding record of them. Um, but really, we only had the record of where they end up on the beach, which is not indicative of what environment they're using or where they're traveling to or what they're eating. So um, yeah, we had this limited data of where they're stranding on the beaches and these limited sightings of them at sea. And we really just had no idea um, apart from just, you know, inferring where they're going and what they're eating based on what other species do. Um, so it was cool for this study to kind of dig a little bit deeper and be the first comprehensive look at, you know, their diet and their habitat use. Mm. And um, so how do you study a, a whale that's so rarely seen? Uh, so because they have this stranding record on the beaches and we collaborated with the South Australian Museum for this study, they have this amazing collection of baleen specimens from pygmy right whales that have been collected from the stranded individuals. And these individuals went back to the 1980s. So we managed to get data from the 80s up until now. And how we get the data from their baleen plates is we look at the chemical cues um, in this stable tissue. So it's made of keratin like your fingernails and it just continually grows throughout the life of the whale. And because pygmy right whales have this really arched jawline, their baleen plates are really long. So they're so much smaller than, say, a humpback whale, but their baleen plate is the same size. It's really amazing. Um, and because you've got this really long baleen plate and all these chemical markers in their baleen that you can infer their diet and their habitat use from, you get around we found three and a half to four years worth of data for each individual from the 80s up until now um, and we use the stable isotope ratios of nitrogen and carbon which is basically nitrogen can tell you kind of what they're eating what trophic level they're feeding at whereas the carbon can tell you where they're feeding and where that kind of um, prey has been consumed. So rather than specific regions we used it to look at whether or not they're migrating to uh, higher latitudes down to Antarctica like the other baleen whales or whether or not they're staying in this mid-latitude region that was kind of already suspected. Mm. So can you tell us a bit about what you found because you know other baleen whales in Australia they move between Antarctica and 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 here but these whales are a bit different. Yeah yeah so we we got some prey samples from different regions around Australia um, and then we, we used the signals within the whales to look at where they matched up with. So we found no overlap between the signals down in Antarctica, which you could kind of safely rule out that they weren't migrating down there at all. Um, and all, all the overlap we found was between Australian krill and copepod species. Uh, and which were kind of around southern Australia region and a little bit further south um, based on their stable isotopes and their baleen, uh, that they were moving slightly further south, maybe to the subtropical convergence, as there's some known kind of feeding hotspots around that area as well. Um, but there was no signals whatsoever, yeah, going down into that high latitude region. Um, what, what one limitation, I guess, is that you can't look at uh, exact regions between these mid-latitude waters. So we know that pygmy right whales are off New Zealand as well, but we don't know if that's a different population. We don't know if they're moving between South Australia and New Zealand. And because the, the signals in the isotopes are quite similar within that region, um, you, we couldn't differentiate exactly where they were going. But you never know, maybe some more, we can chuck some satellite tags on them and we can we can look at exactly where they're moving in this region. But yeah, they're they're one of the only ones in Australia to not to not go down to Antarctica. Yeah, so can you tell us a bit about how you figure out where the whales live and what they're eating based on their baleen on their baleen? 
Um, you mentioned like these chemical signatures. How how do they mark different places around in the sea? Oh. So whatever a, a pygmy right whale eats, that signal of the prey will assimilate into the tissue at the time that the tissue is growing. So um, what happens is when we get the baleen plate, we know that the, the point that will connect the um, that tissue to the gum will be the most recently grown tissue. And because we know when the animal washed up on the beach, we have a date um, at the start there. So we can say, oh, okay, the based on having that prey data available as well, we can say, oh, the value in the whale matches Australian krill at this time because we know when it's stranded. So based on the growth rate of that tissue, we can work out, oh, in June it ate Australian krill because that value in the baleen matches that prey sample. And then you can go back in time. And the what's I think it's just I'm a bit biased so <laughs> with whales anyway, but I think it's really cool because they the values kind of oscillate and they have these annual cycles, which is really cool. And what we looked at was whether or not those that, that variability in those values match different food web dynamics in that region. And we did find that the values that matched Australian krill, which is what is most abundant in the water during that summer upwelling um, in that bonnie upwelling region that we looked at, it matched that classical food web structure that we were seeing and those oscillations in the baleen were matching the differences in that food web structure. So that was another kind of nice um, way to kind of confirm what, what we were seeing and, you know, so, yeah, so they were eating that Australian krill during that time of the year because we could look at that based on the growth rate and the, and the, and the time and, you know, go back in time and say June, July, August, <laughs> um, yeah. It's it seems really ingenious. And so why do like you're talking about the chemical signature of the food that they're eating, like Australian krill, why is there variation in the chemical signatures of, of their prey? So for for nitrogen, so um I'll try and explain it in the least like jargonistic way, but for nitrogen it it is uh the, the base of the food web will be kind of like a really low nitrogen value. And then as you go up the food chain, there's this like predictable enrichment. So say krill is going to be quite low and then you've got, you know, like maybe carnivorous fish would be somewhere near the top and then you've got herbivorous fish in the middle. So it kind of assimilates in a predictable way. So um, that's for nitrogen. And then for carbon, we have these latitudinal gradients in carbon at the base of the food web. So, um, there'll be differences between onshore and offshore carbon and high latitude and low latitude carbon. So there's kind of like predictable ways to work out both latitudinally where they are um, and also where they sit in the food web, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. It's just it's really amazing um, that you're able to figure out all these things by looking at museum specimens. Do you yeah. think, though, like with a whale like this that's so rarely seen, we'll ever be able to confirm what you found in this study through other observations? Definitely. I think um, I think we're hoping that because when you Google pygmy right whales, the first one of the first thing that like autofills is whether or not they're extinct. So we just know like so little about them. Um, and I think, yeah, satellite tags will definitely be able to confirm um sightings yes but then that's just kind of biased biased on where you're looking um but yeah definitely getting some satellite tags on them would be amazing um yeah that will definitely help to confirm what we found for sure 
Mm. And do we have any idea of how many whales there are? I mean, you just mentioned that um, a lot of people might imagine that they're extinct. Do we know how many there are? So, no, uh, like short answer, no. Um, they are listed as least concerned because we just know nothing about them, but their population trend is unknown. Um, so what what's cool is now that we know that they kind of, they rely on this low trophic food in this particular region and turns out, you know, this southwest corner of Australia is one of the most rapidly warming places in the world. So knowing that they rely on this region is kind of the first step in looking at how they may be affected by changes in the climate. And, um, yeah, it's just a good kind of first step to to kind of, yeah, un, un, unravel what they're doing and where they're going. And um, in terms of, like, looking at their population trend, not entirely sure because we don't know if they're distinct populations between Australia and New Zealand and they are restricted to this mid-latitude region you know, around the globe. Um, and there's just really not enough information about the populations and how many are in each population and what the crossover is. So that would be an awesome, awesome study to look into that. And they weren't actually hunted during whaling, were they? No, too small. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's it's good because we wouldn't have the, so with the uh, humpback population, when you're looking at um, the numbers in that population, particularly off our east coast, it's whenever you're researching them, we've got to account for this increasing trend in their population based on the recovery of whaling. But pygmy right whales are this stable population that they never had that really reduced um, amount of uh, individuals left in the population. So what we're looking at now isn't isn't going to be impacted by an increasing trend in population based on like a recovering stock. Um, so it's it's they're a, they're a great little population to look at because they haven't been impacted by that. So going back in time, looking at their diet and habitat use, it's it's a great kind of ecosystem sentinel in a way because you can look at um, they can yeah they can be reflecting what's happening in the ecosystem, which is cool. Have you ever seen one? No, <laughs> I would love to. I would love to, um, as I'm sure so many people do. Um, yeah, I, I would love to head down and, and go out on a boat and just patiently <laughs> wait for one to swim by. Um, might be sitting out there for a while, but um, yeah, would love to. That was Adelaide Dedden from the University of New South Wales discussing new research about pygmy right whales. After the break, the latest on Antarctic sea ice. But first, this is Georgia Llewellyn with Could Be. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio.
I'm Deborah Cheatham Freon, and you're listening to 3CR. Stay tuned and stay radical. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, and before that, we had Like This by Georgia Llewellyn. In the middle of winter, Antarctic sea ice should breach its biggest area, but this year it reached a record low for the coldest months. In fact, 2.5 million square kilometres of ice are missing, more than two and a half times the size of the previous record. That's a big worry for the animals that depend on sea ice, as well as what it means for the global climate. To find out more, I spoke recently to oceanographer Edward Doddridge from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. Let's talk about Antarctic sea ice, which is at its lowest level ever for this time of year. You spoke to the ABC and described it as a 1 in 7.5 million year event. Uh, My brain can't really compute that. Can you explain what you mean when you say that? Yeah, so this this really shows the limits of how we try and talk about these extreme events. So framing it like that, was a choice to try and use language that people are familiar with. You know, we're, we're used to hearing about one in a hundred year floods or one in a thousand year droughts, things like that. So if you look at how much sea ice there has been in, in Antarctica on, you know, yesterday or a particular day during July, um, in the 40 years that we've been able to measure it accurately from space, you get a distribution. Some years it was a bit higher, some years it was a bit lower. And then if you assume that that distribution follows a particular shape, a bell curve, then what you can do is you can calculate the odds of seeing um, an amount of ice either bigger or smaller than a particular value. And so if you use a baseline period from 1980 to 2010, so you take those 30 years and you say that is representative of how the ice around Antarctica behaves, 
And we would expect to see a winter like the one we have just seen approximately once in every seven and a half million years. Now, what that really means is that 1980 to 2010 is not representative of this year, that something has changed fundamentally about Antarctic sea ice. And what we are seeing this year is completely different to previous years. And you can see that really clearly if you look at a graph of Antarctic sea ice anomalies. So how much ice there is either more or less than normal than the average. And what you see is that this year, it has just gone completely below where any other year has ever gone before. At the moment, it's about 2.4 million square kilometres below average. The previous record for this time of year was about a million square kilometres below average, right? It's not just a new record. It's two and a half times the size of the previous record. Um, so yeah, framing it in that sort of one in seven and a half million years was a, a way to try and communicate how extreme this was. Um, but it doesn't mean that in the last seven and a half million years, this is the only time it's ever happened because we know that the climate of the earth changes on those really long time scales. Essentially, it's a, a convenient way of trying to say that Antarctic sea ice is changing and we don't understand how quickly it's changing or where it's going to end up. Mm. I remember, you know, not that long ago when there were some, you know, increasing sea ice trends in Antarctica, but then in the past couple of years, it's really been on a, a downward trend, hasn't it? Do we know anything about what's driving that trend? Yeah, Antarctic sea ice is really complicated. So it exists at the at the centre of what we call the the ocean climate, ocean atmosphere coupled climate system, right? The, the sea ice is on top of the ocean and the bottom of the atmosphere. So it's affected by both of them. We think, and there are some good results to support this, we think that the extension, the increase in the amount of sea ice up until about 2014 was a combination of some changes in the winds and extra water flowing off Antarctica because the ice sheet was melting faster. And that fresh water, it sat at the top of the ocean and it helped insulate the surface of the ocean from the warmer waters below. And that meant that the ice could freeze a little bit more quickly and we got a little bit greater extent, a little bit more area covered by the sea ice. Then in 2016, the sea ice plummeted. There was a lot of research trying to understand what happened. There are quite a few papers saying you've got this particular weather event in the atmosphere and these winds over this part of Antarctica and links them all together. And to an extent, yeah, absolutely. The sea ice has to be consistent with what the winds in the atmosphere are doing. But that's not a full answer, right? Just saying we had these things happen and then the ice responded doesn't tell us why it went from record highs to record lows and has then stayed low ever since. Why is it doing that? We don't know completely yet. What we do know is that the ocean around Antarctica has been warming and that that warming is caused by human emissions of greenhouse gases. That is a really well-supported result from the science. It's not a big leap to say that a warmer ocean is going to lead to less sea ice, but we haven't yet done that leap in a scientifically robust enough way to be able to come out on the radio and say, 
it's the warmer ocean causing there to be less sea ice. I think it's a really clear hypothesis and certainly the the community is going to be looking into that, but we don't know for certain yet. So with the record low Antarctic sea ice, a lot of marine life depends on that sea ice. What are some of the impacts that, you know, that is having on the Southern Ocean ecosystems? Well, in terms of what it, the impacts that it's having right now, we don't know because it's really hard to observe, but we have some really good guesses, some really clear hypotheses about what it is going to do. Now, one thing that we know for certain is that krill, which are the absolute staple food source for almost everything that lives in the Southern Ocean around Antarctica, they come up and they feed on the algae that grows on the bottom of the sea ice during the winter. And that's a crucial food source for them. We think that without that, they can't survive. They can't make it through the winter. So less sea ice, less food for krill, less krill. What happens to all the things that come to Antarctica to eat the krill? It's a bad, it's a big question. Maybe they can adapt. Maybe they'll survive. We don't know. That's one of the, the terrifying things going forwards. But sea ice is also crucial for a whole range of other reasons to different species. Some penguins go and breed on the sea ice. So the emperor penguins, they form their giant huddle and incubate their eggs on the ice that is stuck right next to the coast. And that type of ice has also been decreasing alarmingly in the last couple of years. Can emperor penguins breed either on the shore or on different types of ice? We don't know. We've never seen them do it. Maybe they can adapt. I really hope they can because otherwise they're in a lot of trouble coming, you know, going forwards. Um, but other species, some types of seal, like the crab eater seal, they come and they give birth to their pups up on the sea ice. And they do that to get away from predators. And so if the ice that they're on melts or isn't stable enough or strong enough or big enough for them to come and give birth to their pups, where else are they going to go? We don't know. We've never seen a world in which they had to look for an alternative option. Now, it's almost certain that some of these species will be able to adapt, but we don't know which ones and we don't know how easily. It's... It's a huge worry for Antarctic ecosystems moving forwards. That was Edward Doddridge from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania talking about record low sea ice in Antarctica. And that's all for this week. If you want to listen to this show again or any of our previous episodes, head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. We'll be with you again next week. And in the meantime, stay well. I'm not a